So how would you fill in this blank? God wants you to know. What, what would you put in the blank there? You think maybe love? God wants you to know he loves you. I, you know, I think if we were doing a poll and, 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 and hey, what would go in that blank? Because I think there'd be more than one thing that could go there, right? And there's a variety of what we might call very significant things that God would want a person to know. I'm, I'm guessing that God loves you would probably win the poll if it was just picking one. But there might be three, four, five things that would go there. But you know what? I think there's something that goes there that most of us would not put. I, I think when we hear it, we'd go, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, of course. Especially after we've just spent six months in Revelation. I think what would go there is God wants you to know he's coming back. I, I mean, we know that's important, but if you were thinking about the really important things somebody should know, I don't know if that'd make the average person, the average believer's top three, four, or five list. But think of, think of some of the questions. There's an urgency to that. Like, for instance, when you say, hey, God wants you to know he loves you, maybe you care, maybe you don't care. But when you say, hey, God's coming back, well, that kind of elicits a few more questions. Well, there's a God? It, am, am I supposed to do something because he's coming back? Is there a problem if I don't do that because he's coming back? Does it make any difference to me that he's coming back? Do I need to do something today because he's coming back? Just the entire statement kind of expresses some urgency. I'm confident that Jesus would put that in the blank. Because he said, you must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The coming back of Jesus, that is not only the topic of our text today in Revelation 19, it is the topic of the Bible. That, that really is the story of the Bible. Folks, 1,845 occurrences of the Lord's return in the Bible. 318 of those in the New Testament. 17 books in the Old Testament, their, their primary emphasis is the, is the second coming of the Lord. Now think of that. That's the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, we haven't had the first coming yet. And yet 17, almost half of those books, their primary focus is on the second coming. Get this. Seven out of every 10 chapters in the New Testament is going to make reference to the return of the Lord. This is the Bible story, the coming back of God to his world. You know, about any passage you read on that, and they're all throughout. I mean, we just saw one in Joel. Uh, any passage you read, it's kind of bone chilling, kind of awesome, a little bit terrifying. Uh, they're, they're, they're usually pretty awesome scenes of God's glory, but I don't think any of them. I don't think any of them are like what Jesus allowed John to see and then record for you and me in Revelation 19. But before we read that, and, and I, you know, I alluded to this last week. We had an entire message kind of setting up for what we're about to read. But I would still add, somebody's going to read this and think, man, God sounds horrible. Why would God do this? Why would God be like this? And, and there's probably a, a, a number of reasons, but let me mention two before we read this. Number one, evil must be stopped. Evil must be stopped. You know, my guess is most of us have had a conversation with somebody, and maybe we've been the somebody who questioned 
the existence of God because of the presence of evil. Now, whenever anybody questions the presence of God because the existence of evil, I say, well, what do you do about the presence of good? <laughs> right? I mean, because as much evil as there is in the world, there's also good. Who are you giving credit to that for? Well, you know, a- another thing too, you know, when we say, well, I don't know if there's a God because there's, there's evil. I mean, kind of what we're saying is if there was a God, he'd come do something about this, right? Well, you know, if God came and did something about evil, you do realize he'd be coming and doing something about you. I mean, folks, we've, we've all pitched in to the problem. Now I get it. And I, I honestly, I actually think I'm pretty, I'm talking to a pretty good group of people. I, I, I kind of mildly anticipate that, that most of us are not the great contributors to the great evil of the world. But you notice how I have to add those qualifiers, great, great evil, great contributors. Folks, the reality is maybe you and I have not done some of the things that we consider to be the great evil in the world today, but every one of us has pitched in. And I would dare say you've pitched in more than you have any idea of how much. So there's all this problem with evil, but you know what? God is going to come and do something about it. You know, I mean, I I get it. While I can make these arguments about people questioning God because of evil, I get it. The human soul anticipates if there's a good, uh, if there's a God, he would need to be good and he would need to be all powerful. And if he's not good and he's not all powerful, then what's the point of having a God? Uh, You know, so if he's good and he's all powerful, then he's going to come and do something about evil. So the presence of evil would suggest, I get that the human soul longs for that to happen. Well, folks, I would also say evil does not have an unchecked run through the human story. It does not have an unchecked run through history. But in Revelation 19, it will be checked. It will be checked permanently. So that's why what is about to happen is happening is to stop evil. You know, a, 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 a second issue, folks, is that mankind will be humbled one way or the other. We will be humbled. We can, we can choose and, and voluntarily do that, or we can be forced. God's not going to share his glory with another. God is not going to share his glory. Now, you know, that statement I mean, if I said that, if I, hey, y'all, I want you to know something. I, it's all about me, and I'm not sharing that glory with anybody else. You'd think, well, he's just a little full of himself, isn't he? A little egotistical, a little, little bit braggadocious. I mean, you wouldn't take that as a, as a positive attribute of mine. So w- what about when God says that? Well, here's the difference. When I say it, it's not the truth. I'm not the center of all things. Your, your soul is not aided by me being the center of it. This universe is not aided by me being the center of it. That's not the truth. It is the truth when God says it. God is not doing you a favor by letting you not know that if you put glory in anything else, it's going to fail you and you're going to fail. It is right and good for the soul, for the universe, for us to give glory to God and to make him the center. And that will happen. Now, we can do that voluntarily as we come to faith in Jesus Christ and actually be rewarded for it. Or you be you. You be you, man. You you do your thing and you take your chance with the wrath of the Almighty. Let's see what that looks like. Would you turn with me today to to Revelation chapter uh, 19? 
Revelation, just a, a probably a page or two from the end of your Bible, not including the maps. Uh, go to the end of your Bible, very end, Revelation 19. We're picking up in verse 11. Two weeks ago, we looked at verses 1 through 10. That is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a great wedding. You want to be there for it. And that happens before the second coming. And so now we're picking up in verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name which he is called, the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Verse 19, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Right out next to verse 18 and 19, you you might want to write Psalm 2. And I'll come back to that in just a little bit. But you might want to write down Psalm 2 next to verse 18 and 19. Verse 20, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Did you notice twice it refers to the sword coming out of, of Jesus' mouth? Quite a, a an, an awesome description of what is happening here. Somewhat awesome, somewhat terrifying what has happened. Folks, Jesus steps through the sky. Jesus is going to return, and it is, it is quite an awesome thing, scene. Think of what happens in this moment. There's been a debate for 2,000 years about whether Jesus Christ really resurrected. Whether, whether a man named Jesus went to the cross and, and then conquered death and rose again on the third day. There's a debate about whether that happened or not. There are those of us who accept that historical event as truth and by faith, and there are those who reject it. But do you realize that debate has an end? That, that debate doesn't go on forever and ever. All will see, all will know that Jesus is risen, that Jesus is resurrected, that Jesus is the reigning king of the universe. The debate ends, and it ends right here in Revelation chapter 19. And look how he is described as, as the world, as all the world beholds him. He's on a white horse. That sounds kind of fun, right? That probably doesn't mean much to you and me other than that he's on a horse. In this day and time, in the culture in which this was written, that actually meant a lot. 
That's how a general, that is how a king returned after conquering enemies, after conquering the nations. Jesus is coming. Now notice, the battle hadn't happened yet, has it? But he's already conquered. He's already reigning. He's already riding the white horse. And then look how he is described. The first two words, faithful and true. Faithful and true. That first word, faithful. Hey, he keeps his promises. And he made a promise that he was coming back. We've been waiting on that for 2,000 years. That, that'll wear down a promise, won't it? I, I mean, folks, the truth of the matter is if somebody promised you they'd be there at 1 o'clock, about 10 minutes in, you're wondering what happened to the promise, right? It, it takes us minutes to start doubting a promise. 2,000 years. That, that'll really wear it down. And yet we're going to say, oh, my gosh. He kept his promise. He is faithful. He is true. These two words are used together, combined together. And true here means something so much more than just that he tells the truth. This true here is more of an idea of just, of righteous, being faithful and true. I think maybe the way we would say all that is, wow, Jesus never missed. Jesus never failed. Not anyone, not me. You know, my guess is right now, here in the room, joining with us online, there are, I'd like to say a few, it's probably many individuals who right now feel like Jesus failed them. I mean, you're here, you still love him, you're still trying to hold on to him, but if you're being honest, you feel like there was a place he failed, I mean, you prayed and you prayed and you prayed and, and you know, you weren't praying for selfish things. You're praying something you know is the will of God. And, and yet, it doesn't feel like an answer ever came. It, 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 doesn't felt, it doesn't feel like Jesus ever really showed up and did. I mean, I love Jesus. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I would think as somebody who loves him and is trying to follow him, I'm not, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing the best I can. It just seems like he would have showed up. It just seems like in that place he would have protected, he would have provided, he would have guided. It, it just seems, and, and so we, we struggle. I mean, there's this place, he, he failed. Do you know in an instant, you've heard me say this before, we, we always get this idea, I'm going to get to heaven and I'm going to, I've got some questions for God. You will not have a single question when you see him. I don't know exactly how it happens, but I believe, and I, I believe this is the kind of moment right here when we will see him where every single dot is connected. And we're going to realize in an instant, he did not fail me. He did not fail anyone. He is faithful and he is true. He is faithful and he is true. That's what we're thinking when we see him. Hey, not, hey Lord, I got, I, got, I, got, I got a question for you. That's not what we're saying. Uh, Let's see here. Uh, His eyes are like a flame of fire pointing to the piercing judgment. I think in our nomenclature and our way of seeing, we say he can see right through. That's funny. We, we, we'll say that about, boy, he, I, listen, I can see right through you. Now, the truth of the matter is I actually can't. You can't. We never can. 
But when we're saying that, what are we saying? I know what's really going on here. I see your motives. And sometimes we can tell what somebody's motives are, what they're really doing and saying. But, but Jesus actually can do it. Every time, in every situation, with everyone, on everything. There's not a single place that his eyes of fire do not see right through a situation. That the crowns, the diadems pointing to his right to rule. He has a name that no one knows but himself. I I love this one. I, I love this one. You know, folks, you and I can know so many wonderful things, incredible things about God. They're not things we know because we're so smart and we've come to the knowledge. There are things we know through God's word. There are things we know by the Holy Spirit. There are things we know walking through life with the Holy Spirit and with the Bible that we can learn about God. And when we get to heaven, boy, that's just going to become even so much more we're going to be able to learn. Do you realize we never get to the last page? Do you realize we never get to the bottom of the barrel? You'll never stop learning. I mean, we say that that that, that person's multifaceted. Jesus is infinitely faceted. We, We can never stop learning about him. There will always be a new and incredible discovery. This name that no one knows is just pointing to that fact that he is not entirely comprehensible to any created being. And he is... Uh, he, and his uh, robe is clothed, or his, his, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, is pointing to the bloody battle that is about to take place. He has a name called the Word of God. That's a title for Jesus throughout the New Testament. There's a number of places that he is referred to uh, by that. That That's one of my favorite titles of Jesus because it communicates so much. That word for word <laughs> in the Greek language is the word logos. He is the logos to theos. He is the, the word of God. Logos in the Greek language, that is the content of something. When we say ethos, that is the, that's the emotion. That's the passion of something. But Jesus is the logos. He is the content of God. He is the content of the mind of God. He is the, the content of the heart of God. He is the, he is the perfect presentation of all that God is. Jesus is the word, the, well, you know what that word means? Revelation. Jesus is the revelation of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen. Now, it doesn't really identify specifically who the armies here are. I mean, we know angels are involved in this moment, right? We've got other passages that talk about the angels coming back at this moment. We've seen that throughout Revelation. But we do have, not only in the New Testament, but in Revelation. Remember, context. Context help us, clues us into who and what something is. There are a people in white linens. You and me. The church. The church is given white linens. We looked at that just a a, a couple of Sundays ago. Folks, this is you and me coming back with Jesus. I don't know. That sounds kind of cool that we're coming back with Jesus at the second coming when the sky splits open. I mean, I'm thinking, could I have, could I do that ride twice? I mean, what an awesome moment. Can you imagine this, folks? You and I are coming with Jesus into this world and and into this battle. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He just speaks, folks. 
You know, we are at the Battle of Armageddon. That is what is, that's what's being described here. This is, this is coming to the great battle, the battle of all battles, the battle that ends all things. We all know if Hollywood was in charge of this, what it would look like. I mean, we like the story where the hero kind of takes it on the chin for a while. We're kind of wondering what's going to happen. And in the, and in the 15th round, in the last inning, here he comes, here he comes. He's, he's going to win. We like that kind of comeback story. Folks, God's not going to be able to provide you a comeback story. There is no measurable power against the power of all powers. He is the power of all the universe. He's not going to sweat. He, he, he's not going to get winded. He doesn't even need to lift a finger. He just speaks. And the nations will be destroyed. We'll come back to that again because it, it mentions it again. So he, he speaks with this sword. It's just his voice that is going to bring the victory. He rules with a rod of iron, uh, uh, an iron scepter. This is a reference to government. Now, when we think of government here, don't, don't think of a, of a building. Don't think of a particular leader, but think of governed. We are, we are governed by a, by a constitution and a bylaws. We are governed by a set of values. We're governed by a set of laws. The iron scepter here is that we are going to be governed with God's standard. I mean, on one say, we could say the whole Bible's God's standard. In, in a shorter version, we could say, well, God's standard is the Ten Commandments. Think of what we've done with God's standard. I mean, we've rebelled against it. We've, we've disobeyed with it. Today, really, we mock it. Well, I mock, I mock, I mock God's standard on telling the truth. I mock God's standard on money. We certainly mock His standard on sex and sexuality. We mock it because we know more. We know better. We, we don't, this is this, this silliness. And God, and we, we've referred to it in Revelation. We've referred to it as a mystery. The mystery is God has allowed this to go on for a season, for a time. But folks, a day is coming when all will yield, all will submit to God's governance. All will submit to God's rule and to his standard. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. You know, we don't usually put Jesus and fury or Jesus and fierce in the same sentence, do we? You know, I mean, we're talking about Jesus. We put words like love and forgiveness and grace, and we should. Those are words that perfectly describe who Jesus is, what he is, how he relates, but so is wrath. So is fury. Now, our difficulty in seeing Jesus, you know, filled with wrath, filled with fury, is you and I have never seen wrath We've never seen fury when it wasn't tainted with sin or entirely enveloped with sin. God's wrath, Jesus' wrath is not covered in sin. It's not even tainted by sin. His wrath is pure. It is righteous. It is just. It is the only wrath you can look at and say, wow, that is actually good. That actually brings about what is right and good and perfect. Grace and wrath are both character qualities of Jesus. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. The, the thigh, of course, this muscle, this is the strong muscle of the body. It supports the whole body. It balances the body. On this place of power, his name, King of Kings. 
Oh, there's a lot of kings, but there's one who's king of all kings. There's a lot of lords, but there's one who's lord of all lords. Every day, all the time, in every situation, that is his name. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. He's looking into this. I mean, you know, the sun is something we can't quite look at. It just kind of burns our eyes. We have to look away. I think this this angel is actually standing in front of the intense, brilliant glory of God. And he does something here that is just where the story just gets like, wow, this is God. He invites all the birds of the air to come to supper. And humanity is on the menu. All of humanity. You see all these titles here, kings and, 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 and captains and mighty men. There's a lot of that because the center point, the beginning of this judgment is happening at Armageddon. It's happening at a battle. But it spreads out from there to all people, great and small, however you want to define somebody. Whatever their title is, all people will end up being eaten by birds. Now, This is all people that are left after all of the judgments we've been through during the seven years. But folks, all of them will be wiped out. The, they, the nation, so again, we're at Armageddon. So the Antichrist with, with his nations, probably mostly European nations, are coming to Armageddon. It, by the description, can't say for sure, but it, it would almost, at least in our understanding of nations and boundaries today, it almost looks like something like a China would, would be coming across the continent to meet the Antichrist, the false prophet, and those nations in a battle. And they will, they will be battling. They'll be at war. And when Jesus comes through, because he's coming through when this war starts, they're going to go also... You know, I think we should stop fighting each other just for a moment and turn all of our attention there. And they will all unite in that moment to battle, uh, to battle Jesus. Now think about this, folks. This would be... Again, I'm not saying these are the nations exactly how it looks. I'm just thinking for our own imagination how we would understand this today. Can you imagine Russia, China, and the United States all on the same field of battle? We, we would call those three nations, they are the superpowers. I mean, that's what we're talking about here, the power of the world. And, and if you can imagine those three militaries all on the same field of battle, I mean, you're, you're talking about the most proficient, the most excellent, the most skilled, the most committed soldiers uh, that those three nations would be bringing together. But it's not just the soldiers. Think of the technology behind those three nations. Think of the weaponry behind those three. You know, all three of these nations would like to just destroy the other. But we know we really can't quite engage in that battle because if this thing spun out of control and we start using what we have at our hands, we could obliterate the planet like a hundred times over, right? So, so we have to hold ourselves in some restraint. Think of, I mean, the only word to use is power. Think of the power represented there. The powers of the world coming together, turning in one thing that unites them to throw off God to defeat God, to defeat his principles, his laws and values, to say, we don't need him anymore. And again, what we've got in our mind now, okay, now the big battle ensues. Remember I told you to write Psalm 2? You know, I made, I, a little bit ago I said, you know, there's 1,845 occurrences of the Lord's return in the Bible. There might be a couple of those that you read and never quite grasped that Oh, wait a minute. That's the Lord's return. 
Well, now that we've read Revelation 19, now that you've got a little bit of understanding what is happening here, listen to Psalm 2 and see if this sounds familiar. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The nations are raging. The the nations are at war. But listen to this. They're coming together. The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together. There's raging. There's war. But it's not against each other. They're all coming together in unity. Well, what are they raging against? Against the Lord and his anointed. The nations of the world coming together to fight God and his Christ. Verse 3, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their courts. Let's throw off God. Let's finally be, let's end this whole God discussion. Let's end forevermore any idea of there being a God and his rule in our lives. The nations are conspiring. The nations are coming together. They're ready for war. The superpowers of the world. And what does God do? Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The next line says, the Lord holds them in derision. It, it, it's not just that he laughs. He, he laughs almost like with a chuckle, like serious. Like what? We're, serious? We're going we're gonna to fight right now? That's cute. That's, that's really neat. You, you, you think we're going to fight. <laughs> he, no sweat. No, what do I do? Not, I'll be right back. I got to go get my armies. None of that. He laughs. What did we hear twice in Revelation? About a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. Listen to verse 5. Then he will speak. He doesn't have to go get a weapon. Then he, at, at the presence of all the power in the world, he will speak to them in his wrath and he will terrify them in his fury. Well, Psalm 2 sounds a little different now, doesn't it? <laughs> that would be one of the 1,845 occurrences of what we just read in Revelation 19. Speaking of not, not only what Jesus does with the nations, but did you notice how he just dismissed the Antichrist and the false prophet? I mean, those two together represent all the power in the world. All these superpowers, all these nations have come together under them. And Jesus just dismisses them. He doesn't have, he doesn't have to come down and engage them. He doesn't have to come down and handcuff them. He doesn't have to come down and do anything. He just speaks and they are dismissed to their new eternal home, the lake of fire. He just speaks. Folks, there is no measurable power against the Lord God Almighty. So what we, what we have just read is Armageddon. That is the seventh bowl. And so we have completed the seven bowl judgments. Now that we've completed the seven bowl judgments, we have completed the seven trumpet judgments. And now that the seven trumpet judgments are completed, we have completed the seven seal judgments. And now that the seven seals are completed, the tribulation is over. That is the tribulation. And what comes next is the millennial reign of Christ, the 1,000-year rule of Christ in Jerusalem. That is not heaven. 
Heaven is not what follows this day. Heaven, by my understanding, and there are differences of opinion, heaven's a thousand years away. We've not yet, you know, we've seen believers resurrected. You know, at this point, we've not seen a single unbeliever resurrected at any time. Not during the tribulation, not not those that were unbelievers before. There's been no resurrection, no judgment of unbelievers. There's been no discussion of a, of a heaven or a hell. That is later. What comes next is the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Next Sunday, we'll look at why. Is there a, why aren't we just going straight on into heaven at this point? Why is there a 1,000-year reign? What's that all about? What is it going to accomplish? And then following that, we're going to start the process of moving on into to, to heaven and hell. But before we get all to that next week, let's not leave Revelation 19 without what we need. Seven things, real quickly, let me give you that we need to take away. Seven observations. Number one, the second coming is a glorious event that the whole world, believers and unbelievers, will see. Jesus' return is not spiritual. It's not mystical. It's not something where we just say, well, God's everywhere and he's back with us. Yes, that's all true. But the second coming is his bodily, visible, physical return to Jerusalem. Number two, there's no threat to the reign of Christ. There is no threat to the reign of Christ. Not yesterday, not today, not tomorrow. There is nothing that ruffles his feathers. (laughs) Folks, all we're waiting on is timing. The, The timing that the rest of the world realizes there's just one King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Number three, in the second coming, Jesus comes with the saints to the earth. In the rapture, he comes for the saints. My point there is that it is two distinct events. Now remember, and I think I've used this illustration before, we've we've got a word in our culture, Coke, right? Now when I say Coke, I can be referring to a specific product. It comes in a red can, has a little wavy white line, says Coca-Cola, right? And, and, and I can say, I got a Coke, and, and you know that you probably know what I was holding in my hand and what I drank. But I could also say, hey, let's go get a Coke. And you know that that term actually involves a whole bunch of carbonated sugary drinks found all over the world. I, I mean, we can say, let's go get a Coke, and we might actually get a Sprite or a root beer or any other host of drinks. Coke is kind of an all-encompassing word. It's a specific product and an all-encompassing word. You with me? Okay, so that's how the word second coming and day of the Lord is. Second, day of the Lord is the phrase most often used in the Old Testament. Second coming is the phrase most used in the New Testament. They are both referring to the same thing. And they both refer to something very specific. We just read about it in Revelation 19. An actual coming of Christ to this world. A day of Armageddon. A day of judgment. But those terms also are all-encompassing. We can say, and we see this throughout the Old and New Testament, we can say second coming or day of the Lord, and that includes a seven-year event. It includes an antichrist and a false prophet and a whole host of judgments. Uh, It includes Armageddon. It includes a rapture and a second coming. The rapture and the second coming are distinct events. No matter where you put it, and you remember I said there's differences of opinion. I believe the church is raptured before the tribulation. But whether it's before, in the middle, or after, it is distinct. 
In the rapture, Jesus is coming for us and we rise to meet him in the air and from there go on up into heaven for the marriage supper of the Lamb that we looked at two weeks ago. In the second, in the second coming, we are coming with Jesus and it's not a U-turn back up to heaven. We are coming with him all the way to the earth. So those are two distinct events. Number four, no one saved person is left alive. You remember, now again, this is under, under the view I hold that the church is raptured before the tribulation. On day one of the tribulation, there's no believers on the planet because they've all been raptured. On the last day of the tribulation, there's no unbeliever on the planet. They've all been judged and killed. Not just in Armageddon, but in all of the judgments that have, have taken. As a matter of fact, Probably the one question I have forgotten on all this is who's left by time we get. I mean, you remember all these judgments we've walked through. Who's still alive to show up at this battle? But one group at the end that will be alive is believers. Not believers that were raptured, but people who came to faith in Christ during the seven-year tribulation. And the best I can tell from the story we've been through since Easter, most of them are going to be killed. I, I mean, the great majority of them are going to be killed by the Antichrist. So I don't know how many believers are left, but that's all that's left at the end of the day. And they'll be the ones who go into the 1,000-year reign of Christ. Now, we're with Jesus also, but remember, we're in our eternal glorified bodies at this point. We've already received our rewards, and then there will be these who survived the uh, the, the tribulation that will begin to, to rebuild that millennial kingdom. We'll look at all the what's and the why's of that to come, but no unsaved person left alive. Number five, there is an end to evil. When's your last brush with evil? This week? 20 years ago, leave a mark, still can't get over it. <laughs> hey, it's real, right? Evil is real. The scripture never actually says evil's not real. It says it's quite real and it can leave quite a mark, but there is an end to evil. Evil does not write the last page. There is an end to evil. There is no end to God. Number six, God fulfills his promises. Amen. He said he was coming back and he came back. He fulfills his promises. Number seven, our last one, Christ is king. And wisdom demands that we live like that. Now, wisdom is a nice and a biblical way of saying if you have a lick of sense. And that's something that most of us struggle with at some point or another, right? If we have a lick of sense, then every day, all day, I will live like Christ is king and he's coming back. Because one day, that's all that's going to count. That is all that is going to matter is that he is king and he is back. Now, folks, obviously that statement takes faith. Now, when you and I, in our, in a, again, Western culture, when we say faith, we're talking about something that you do because there's no science, because there's no evidence, because there's no reasoning. If you don't have those things, then, well, that's kind of cute for you. You have, you have faith. A lot of our world has gotten over faith. We realize we don't need faith anymore. But folks, that's not neither a Greek or a Hebrew understanding of the word faith. That's not how it was used. That's not how it's defined. Faith was, was steps you took because of evidence, not the absence of evidence. 
So what would be the evidence about the second coming? What would be the evidence of living today, tomorrow, the week to come, like Jesus is coming back? What would be the, the evidence? Well, folks, remember, this is what coming is second. We've had a first coming. And do you know before that first coming, we had prophecies, we had promises about what that was going to look like. That is historically verifiable, historically uh, uh, measurable. This isn't faith. We can see when these things were written and what, what was described and we can see what happened. You know, when it was, when it was written 800, 900 years before, 400 years before, that this is what the Messiah was going to look like, that this is what was going to happen to him. You know, for hundreds of years, that seemed kind of, I'm not sure what that means. I'm not sure what that, how we're supposed to understand that. I mean, it can't be literal. Maybe there's some spiritual meaning, some symbolic meaning. I mean, there was just didn't know quite what to do with all that. But guess what? We get to the other side of the first coming And we look back on 62 major, there's others, 62 major prophecies describing what the first coming would be, what it would look like, what Jesus would look like, what he would do. We get to the other side of the first coming and look back and guess what? Oh, I guess God just meant what he said. I guess there wasn't really anything to figure out, the symbol, the meaning, the confusion behind it all. I guess when God said he was going to be born in Bethlehem, I think he just meant he was going to be born in Bethlehem. I guess when God said his hands and his feet would be pierced 900 years before the execute, the crucifixion ever even existed as a form of execution, I guess God just meant he's going to be pierced in his hands and his feet. Folks, God's already fulfilled all his and he batted a thousand you know like i mean honestly i wouldn't have a problem if he got 60 out of 62 i'd still be impressed wouldn't you well man yeah he, he called it you know hundreds of years before and he got 60 out of 62 right i'm gonna believe in him i mean those other two I mean, it was raining that day i mean who could help it no he got them all right folks that is the evidence By which you and I read the prophecies of the second coming and go, oh, I guess God just means what he says. I guess it's just going to look like what he said. It's on that evidence that we then live like he's king and he's coming back. Well, what does that mean? I live like he's king and he's coming back. It means you don't get vengeance because Jesus said it belonged to him. It means you forgive because he said, I want you to forgive in the same way that I've forgiven you. It means when the most, the the thing that Jesus talked about most, money, because that's the number one God he competes with. And he said, hey, listen, I'm coming back. I'm going to take you to heaven. You really want to store some of that money up in heaven. Now, I don't, be honest with you folks, I don't really know what that means or what that looks like or what we would be doing with money in heaven. But I know my king said, you really want to store some of this in heaven. Well, if I believe that, then I'm going to act on it, Right. You know, it just means we take kind of take a whole new fresh look at all of his government, his values, his laws, and say, you know, I think there might be a day where the only thing that counts is that I lived by his government. I lived under his values and principles. That may leave me some things out of today's government and principles, today's values, but today isn't king. Today, is, today may be a king, but it's not the king. It's not the king of all kings. Every day, all day, we live like we have a returning king. You know, again, folks, in in, in closing, we could could look at this and, oh, hey, 
God's feeding people to the birds. I, I don't even know if I want to know a God like that. I mean, seriously, what kind of God is this? Now, do you know why I preached last week's message first? There's a first coming so that nobody has to experience the wrath of the second coming. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven, Declare to them, says the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn and live. God doesn't want you to know the experience of being eaten by birds. He wants you to know the experience of being adopted as a child of God, forgiven of your sins. His return being the great reward in your life, the great joy and hope of your life, not the defeat of your life. He's done everything to make that possible. And the scripture even says now that he is patient. He is patiently. Where's he? When's he coming back? He's being patient because when he comes back, your chance is up. Have you turned to the Lord? You know, last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, I don't remember the exact now. I said, Jesus' invitation is, come unto me all who are weary. Unless you're weary, you'll never go to God. We're strong. Strong in our health, strong in our money. Strong in my philosophy, my view of the afterworld and the spiritual life. I'm strong in my understanding of all that. I'm strong in my goodness. Strong in my religiosity. Strong in my spirituality. I am, I'm just strong and I, I have today. Anybody who's strong will never go to the Lord. But when you finally become weary... Weary of lying to yourself about how strong you are. Weary of your sin. Weary of your guilt. Weary of pretending in your small puny mind you understand eternity. When you become weary, Jesus says, come come to me. And I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. What does it mean to to turn to the Lord? Romans 10, 13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Whoever, that's anybody in this room, anybody watching online, whoever, anybody, anywhere at any time. Well, what, what is it I'm calling? Well, a few verses earlier, Romans 10, 9 says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. Now that doesn't mean just say three words, Jesus is Lord and poof, we're good. What am I saying when I say I'm confessing Jesus is Lord? I'm confessing he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. That means his iron scepter, his rule is in my life and I'm going to live like it in every day, every situation, in every relationship. I'm confessing he is God. I'm not. He is God. The culture is not. He is God. My feelings are not. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, that belief, that's a hope. My hope is not in what I've figured out. My hope is not in my goodness. My hope is in the death, burial, and and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Saved from what? Revelation 19. It's coming and it's real. 
And God wants to save you. God wants to rescue you from that. And folks, Revelation 19 is not the bad news. The bad news is what's going to be following after that. When, the, when those who are not in Christ are resurrected and they join the Antichrist and the false prophet in the lake of fire for all eternity. That's what we're being saved from. That's what the rescue is about. Well, if you're here today and you have any question about whether you've turned to the Lord, called out to the Lord, maybe you know you haven't, but you've, you know you're weary. Well, I want to give you a chance right here and right now to call out to the Lord. I want to say a prayer. It's a prayer much like I prayed when I called out to the Lord. And I don't, I don't know that I'm going to say the exact same words because that was a long time ago. But it's going to be pretty close. But my saying the same exact words that I said in 1982 or you saying the exact same words as I'm saying, that, that's not the issue. What these words are is an expression of our heart, the expression of weariness and calling out to one who can save us. If that's what you want to do right now, I, just, I would just say let my prayer become your prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm weary. I'm weary in my own sin and failure. I'm weary of the lies I tell myself. I believe in you there is forgiveness. I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died on a cross and you rose again for me. Jesus, would you come into my life and help me to follow you? Jesus, it's in your name that I ask this. Amen.